Hi, everybody. My name is Warren Perry. I'm with the National Portrait Gallery. I'm a writer and researcher over in the Catalog of American Portraits and the Center for Electronic Research and Outreach Services. And we're here tonight to talk about Robert McCurdy's portrait of Toni Morrison beside me here. One of the great observations I heard about this piece in the past few days, uh, Jobel Boone, one of our uh, curatorial assistants, was telling me she came through this gallery one day a little while back, and there was a man standing here in front of this image, just staring and staring, and he said when she walked by, she could be God. Oh, wow, that's a great demeanor that he has. Um, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about Robert McCurdy, the artist, and a little bit about his process. One of the things you notice about this portrait right away is it's photographic in quality. It's photographic in detail and in intensity, and that's not accidental. Our, one of our curators, Brandon Fortune, has met with Mr. McCurdy a couple of times, and she was describing his process of getting to this, this end, and he takes lots and lots of photographs of, this, of the sitter, and when Toni Morrison walked into his studio, she was wearing this. And he took these photos, photo after photo after photo, and in the end, he chose one of the photos, the photo is what he said. This is the photo I want to represent on canvas. And he didn't do preliminary sketches. He, he began with that image, and he said, that is the image I want to extract and I want to pull out and put on this piece of canvas. And his, his process with this is, is zen-like because this noise was going on earlier today. I don't... That's what, I was trying to figure that out earlier. It broke, it broke my zen-like concentration. So let me talk a little bit about Mr. McCurdy and then I'll talk, go back to the process a little bit. Robert McCurdy was born in 1952 in Pennsylvania and he was educated here on the East Coast first at Virginia Commonwealth and then at the Maryland Institute of Art in Baltimore. Later he received a fellowship from Yale University. He lives in New York City and keeps a studio there uh, as I said, Brendan Fortune, one of our curators, met with him as recently as this past autumn. And one of the things that we have to bring out over and over again about this image is if it looks dense, if it looks detailed, it's because it is. He's nothing if not deliberate. He considers himself a minimalist, and all his portraits on this scale seem to capture this amount of detail, and each take about a year to complete. Other people who have sat for him include Warren Buffett, the Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, Neil Armstrong, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. McCurdy says of his work, 
during the portrait sitting, I look for a sustainable moment, one where there is no before or after. It is why there is no movement, no expression or gesture. The image is reported rather than interpreted. The technique is calculated to minimally filter the experience. There are no clues as to how the viewer should feel. Again, we use the term zen-like in focus. When you get close to this, you pick up the stitches in the sweater. You pick up the smallest increments of work. And it just, from here as well as from here, it seems like a photograph. He builds the depths of these images very deliberately. His work, again, is slow. About once a year is when he completes one of these portraits. He's been pretty widely, widely exhibited. He's been exhibited in New York. He's been exhibited in Baltimore, Washington, also Switzerland, Canada, Germany. There's a moment that I, that I want to describe in first my words and then in terms that he uses. When you, when you consider this piece, there's an ongoing theatricality inside this image. He uses a term called centripetal decay, which scientifically, when you stare at this piece, you're drawn into it, and then that decay is the length of time it takes to pull you back out of the consideration of this image. That term is, um, is a term that was used by... I'm having trouble, I'll remember it in a minute. Not by, as in, oh, John, John O'Connor, in talking about the images of, um, of Senator McCarthy taken and, uh, and these moments when, when Murrow would, would have the camera consider McCarthy and just stay on him. And you're there and you're given this, this resonance that, that lasts and you're, and you're given this, this long period to consider the subject. This ongoing theatricality, this, this decay where you stay inside this image, it's real interesting to note that on his website, McCurdy talks a lot about theater and he talks a lot about what is invested in the recording of an experience. One of the things that he, uh, one of the things that that he notes, and this is actually a quote he has on his website from Peter Brooks, uh, director and theorist. Shakespeare used the same unit that's available today: a few hours of public time. He used this time span to cram together second for second a quantity of lively material of incredible richness. This material exists simultaneously. On an infinite variety of levels, it plunges deep and reaches high. The technical devices, the use of verse and prose, the many changing scenes, exciting, funny, disturbing, were the ones the author needed and were the ones the author was compelled to develop and satisfy his needs. And the author had a precise human and social aim which gave him reason for searching for his themes, reason for searching for his means, reason for making theater. And I want to go back to one part of that quote. A quantity of lively material of incredible richness. And I think 
what Brooks says there describes this portrait very well. There's a couple of other things that, uh, that I pulled off of McCurdy's notes I liked. He says, ultimately, and he's quoting Roland Barthes here, ultimately photography is not subversive, but when it frightens, not, is subversive not when it frightens, repels, or even stigmatizes, but when it is pensive, when it thinks. And again, that's this drawing us into this image, this locking us in and taking us with it. And then I like this from Robert Frost also. He says, there is nothing as mysterious as something that is clearly seen. And, and you pick up that when you're drawn in with that centripetal decay that you just locked into this image. And he obliges you to come up with your own explanation for what's at work inside this portrait. I want to talk a little bit about Toni Morrison. <coughs> Pardon me. Tony Morrison was born Chloe Anthony Wofford. Oh, and we're, we're blessed here. Casey is actually a, a Tony Morrison scholar, so if I, if, I run into a, if I run into a bind here, I'm going to appeal to, to her. Tony Morrison was born Chloe Anthony Wofford in 1931 in Lorain, Ohio, which is slightly west of Cleveland, part of the Cleveland metropolitan area. Her father was a welder in a shipyard, and her family came up from the south like a lot of African-American families in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there's a migration coming north, and it's to avoid the racism of the South. It's also to avoid mistreatment, but it's also to find opportunities in the north. It's, it's to find jobs. And uh, Cleveland, Detroit, these places, places of manufacture, are the, uh, the end of this, this movement. Early on, Toni Morrison enjoyed reading, and the folklore, which was part of, the southern, of her southern tradition. And this folklore, this storytelling, and, this, and uh, the things that we see coming out of the South, the Gothic uh, components of that, are things that she's incorporated into her later work, especially in Beloved, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. She attended Howard University here in Washington, and later on she went to, she received her master's degree from Cornell. She received her bachelor's here in 1953 and her master's degree in 1955. She taught briefly at Texas Southern University in Houston, and then she returned to Howard in 1957, where she met Harold Morrison, an architect. They were married in 1958, had two sons. A few years later, they were divorced, and... She moved to Syracuse. She took a job with Random House, hoping that it would eventually get her a job with Random House in New York, which it did. Her first novel, The Bluest Eye, was published in 1970 and followed by several more novels, including Song of Solomon, which won the National Book Critics Award and the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters Award in 1977. Her novel, Beloved, was published in 1987, and won a Pulitzer Prize in 1988. In 1993, Toni Morrison was the first African-American woman to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, or the first black woman to do so, the second American woman to do so. Pearl Buck actually received the Nobel Prize uh, in... uh, I've got my cheat sheet back here. Pearl Buck received her Nobel Prize in 1938. Um, interestingly, Toni Morrison is the one who dubbed President Clinton in the middle of the Lewinsky scandal in 1998 the United States' first black president. 
quote from an article in the New Yorker in October of that year. I want to talk a little bit about Beloved and talk about how, how Toni Morrison's work fits into the body of her contemporaries. She is not afraid to step boldly into the world of the fantastic and the paranormal. We see Toni Morrison using magical realism like we see Salman Rushdie in Midnight's Children where the first thousand children born after India's independence have these magical gifts. Angela Carter, Nights at the Circus, where things suddenly change scale when an ice sculpture shatters and, and you're one moment in this size of a world, the next moment you're racing through a carpet as a small, small person. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, magical realism. In Beloved, the magical reality consists, contains the ghost of a child killed by her mother. Beloved is based on the tragic story of an escaped slave, Margaret Garner. In 1851, Garner was about to be caught in Ohio and returned to slavery in Kentucky when she attempted to kill her children rather than let them grow up in bondage. Margaret Garner killed one of her children in this act. Beloved is a fictional account of this tragedy in which the dead child, as a grown woman, comes back to haunt the house of her mother. The child is killed, and because the mother cannot afford to have anything put on the stone to mark it, the mother allows herself to be sexually transgressed by the stone engraver in exchange for the seven letters B-E-L-O-V-E-D to be carved on the dead baby's headstone. From that moment, the baby is called Beloved. The following is from Beloved. Ten minutes for seven letters. With another ten, could she have gotten dearly two? She had not thought to ask him, and it bothered her still that it might have been possible that for twenty minutes, a half hour, say, she could have had the whole thing. Every word she heard the preacher say at the funeral, and all that was to say, surely, engraved on her baby's headstone, dearly beloved. But what she got, settled for, was the one word that mattered. She thought it would be enough, running among the headstones with the engraver, his young son, looking on, the anger in his face so old, the appetite in it quite new. That should certainly be enough, enough to answer one more preacher, one more abolitionist in a town full of disgust. Counting on the stillness of her own soul, she had forgotten the other one, the soul of her baby girl. Who would have thought that a little old baby could harbor so much rage? Running among the stones under the eyes of the engraver's son was not enough. Not only did she have to live out her years in a house palsied by the baby's fury at having its throat cut, but those ten minutes she spent pressed up against dawn-colored stones studded with star chips. Her knees wide open as the grave were longer than life, more alive, more pulsating than the baby blood that soaked her fingers like oil. And again, that's from Beloved. What separates this story from a horror story is that when Beloved finally manifests herself in the form of a living being and an animated person showing up at her mother's house, we're obligated to question her sentience and her motives. And I'd like to read briefly, interestingly, her Nobel acceptance speech, which also contains these echoes of magical realism and this haunted motif that shows up in so much of her literature. I entered this hall pleasantly haunted by those who have entered it before me, the company 
of laureates is both daunting and welcoming, for among its lists are names of persons whose work has made whole worlds available to me. The sweep and specificity of their art have sometimes broken my heart with the courage and clarity of its vision. The astonishing brilliance with which they practice their craft has challenged and nurtured my own. My debt to them rivals the profound one I owe to the Swedish Academy for having selected me to join that distinguished alumni. Early in October, an artist friend left a message which I kept on the answering service for weeks and played back every once in a while just to hear the trembling pleasure in her voice and the faith in her words. My dear sister, she said, the prize that is in yours is also in ours and could not have been placed in better hands. The spirit of her message with its earned optimism and sublime trust marks this day for me. I will leave this hall, however, with a new and much more delightful haunting than the one I felt upon entering, that is, the company of laureates left to come. Those who, even as I speak, are mining, sifting, and polishing languages for illuminations none of us have ever dreamed of. But whether or not any one of them secures a place in this pantheon, the gathering of these writers is unmistakable and mounting. Their voices bespeak civilizations gone and yet to be. The precipice from which their imaginations gaze will rivet us they do not blink nor turn away. It is therefore mindful of the gifts of my predecessors, the blessing of my sisters, and joyful anticipation of writers to come. I accept the honor the Swedish Academy has done me and ask you to share what is for me a moment of grace. I also wanted to mention very briefly one interesting thing to which Tony Morrison is attached, and that's the Oprah bump. Tony Morrison was among the first writers featured on on. Oprah's book club and one of the more fascinating things I think that speaks about not just Toni Morrison's writing but also the power of Oprah in this society in a world that previously was dominated by the white male force of publishers and the white male force of, of edit and, and, and the corporate world of publishing Oprah comes along, and in three visits with Toni Morrison over the course of a few years on her show, books that Toni Morrison had in the marketplace for 10, 15, and 20 years suddenly become bestsellers like that. And it brought, it brought back this, this whole body of work into the eyes of the public, not the traditional reading public as well because Oprah's daytime audience is not necessarily the traditional reading public. It's the, it's the women target audience to which, she, to which she plays. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I was reading about that and about the difference between the jacket sleeves of Toni Morrison's books when they first came out and then when they came out with, uh, with the Nobel Prize winner and then on the back... The, uh, the little Oprah, or actually on the front, I'm sorry, the Oprah tag, which is uh, a bit of a signature of empowerment. And here's a quiz just to end the afternoon. I mentioned briefly that Toni Morrison was one of our American Nobel Prize winners. Now let's all see if we can name the other, I'm going to say 11 and a half American Nobel Prize winners. We can actually say 11, but we could count two of them twice. All right, we're starting off in the early 1900s. 1930, Sinclair Lewis. 
All right, now think dramatist, think theater. 1936, anybody? Eugene O'Neill. Okay. Virginia, Virginia born writer, female writer. I mentioned her. Pearl Buck. Okay, now we got to go to Mississippi. Faulkner. Faulkner. Who's next on that list? Macho, macho man. Ernest Hemingway. Another ambulance driver. Tortilla Flat. John Steinbeck. Very good. And then a couple of our Jewish writers, Saul Bellow and Isaac Bashevis Singer. And we share Seshlaw Milos with Poland. And then Joseph Brodsky, the poet. And then Toni Morrison in 1993. And I also, I was talking with my boss Linda earlier, and I said I think that we can lay claim at least halfway. Since we have to share Milos with Poland, I think that England should be forced to share T.S. Eliot with us since he was born in St. Louis. It's only right. So thank you all for coming out this afternoon. Any, any comments, any questions about, uh, about the work? About, yes, ma'am. Question about the work. The starkness of the contrast between the black and white image. She is a black writer in a white publishing world. And I'm wondering whether any of his other works of art use the same black and white contrast. What was his Mandela background? Or is this an unusual background to have it so stark and blank? I haven't seen the Mandela image, and I'm not sure that it was completed. I don't remember seeing it on the website. But the uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez image is on the website. It doesn't, it's on the website, so you know it's not as monumental as this is in appearance. I remember it was stark, but I don't know that it was this cut, dry, black, white, stark, as you're saying. But his website's really, it's really easy to find also. It's www.robertmccurdy.com. There is nothing on there about him personally. He doesn't talk about himself. There are about three or four pages of quotes, and they all drive you right through his theatrical interpretation of where art comes from in, in his world. But there's not, I was married, I have children, I was, and the only thing I know about him is from uh, our curator and our chief of curators, and they were telling me about his studio in Manhattan, and uh, I said, what does he look like? Is he big, small, white, black? What does he look like? And um, uh, Brandon Fortune said he's, um, she didn't say exactly how big, but she said he wasn't really big, and she said he's got big glasses. And, uh, and she said you go into the studio and you, and you hear the music and you experience the moment. And, uh, and she said... It is. It's, and I, you know, I just keep using the word Zen. He seems to be in the moment, just like he's pulling you into. Did, I, did that answer your question? Get us a little bit further. I know he's a, he's a graduate of Institute College of Art. Yeah. And and Virginia Commonwealth, and uh, he graduated from uh, VCU. I want to say in '73, and and then uh, the Maryland Institute a couple years after that, and then. Did some time with a Yale fellowship, but there's nothing out there like this is my favorite kind of coffee and I like this kind of quiche or whatever. Does this portrait belong to the author or does it belong 
This portrait is. Did she like it? This, I don't. That's an excellent question. I haven't found any of Toni Morrison's commentary on this. This portrait is on loan to the National Portrait Gallery. We are hoping that it will be with us a long time, but it's not. It's not ours. And I've, no, it's uh, loaned by Ian and Annette Cumming. Oh, it, it came from the artist. Came from the artist's studio, and uh, and I don't know that it's been that it was hanging in the Cummings house, but I know that it's been with us since I believe we reopened. If I'm not mistaken, this was this was hanging downstairs on the south side when when we first reopened. But uh, it's it's on loan to us, and like I said, I hope we we have it here for a long time. It, it really serves the room. One of our interns came over here with me earlier and we were looking and she said, this is really interesting about the piece. As you're looking at it, it's obvious that the light when he was painting it comes from here. And of course in this room, and I don't know if our art handlers or our designers were aware of this, but you know, the light, if we were to let the shade open, the light in this room comes across. And they could have put... They could have put this anywhere, but they chose to put it there in that orientation. So I think that's kind of nifty. She really holds the room, doesn't she? Man, it's, uh, it's kind of neat in that she's on one side of that wall and Alice Neal is on the other, and neither of those images are forgettable. <laughs>